politics is a constant battle over values, and we are all inevitably in a state of competition to realize our ideals. In such a contested space, it is possible to develop tactics only in a situated and contextualized way, because there is no war to be won, but rather an endless series of struggles. Critical theory must focus on strategies and tactics. Bernard Harcourt from Critique and Praxis. Listen to us talk, we're a world renowned. Download our podcast where you will consume all the doom and gloom from 99 and Max. Many sound design always inspires to your heart's desire. Hey man, you know there's nothing that we lack. Past your ears into your mind, through the heart, all the facts. On your podcasting app comes a basic white man with a rusty microphone in his red right hand. We left off part three with somewhat of a cliffhanger. It's 1848. Marx just published the Communist Manifesto to critical acclaim, with millions of copies sold throughout the world and governments toppled as a result, thereby ushering in the Russian Revolution. Something something Fidel Castro, China takes over the world, and Hunter Biden sells uranium to the Norwegians for a bag of cocaine, steals a fishing vessel, and blows up the Nord Stream pipeline. For those of you following along at home, the only true part of that is that Marx published the Communist Manifesto. Right you are, just making sure you paid attention to part three. Actually, I'm just reading the script. All the engineering is now done by ChatGPT. Moving on. So that's right. Marx's seminal political work was published in a vacuum and pretty much collected dust until it was brushed off by German revolutionaries much later on. But what was happening that made him so prescient were uprisings all throughout Europe. Workers were revolting against increasingly brutal working conditions in the new urban factory settings toward the end of the first industrial revolution. Economic crisis gripped the European economies and led to widespread starvation and dislocation, which manifested in worker revolts in disparate parts of the continent. In the period I'm referring to as the Critique Period from New Harmony in 1825 to a historical turning point in 1870, We've thus far examined the works of Marx and John Stuart Mill, who are working in parallel without really crossing over. What happened from 1848 to 1870 in the second half of the critique period was a gradual coalescence of political thinking. This merger of interests and observations helped formulate more specific and practical philosophies. With peasants moving into the working class, accessing education and participating in the capitalist economy, there was a sense among socialist theorists that the ideas that once existed in journals and scholarly outlets might somehow come to life. But how and where? Two intellectuals who sought to answer these questions were Pierre-Joseph Proudhon and Mikhail Bakunin. While Marx deserves to live in the public consciousness as one of the great intellectuals in human history, in socialist circles, Proudhon and Bakunin were far more influential during their lifetimes and probably contributed more to the practical aspects of socialist theory that have endured. Now, I'll leave it to academics to answer why Marx emerged as the most notable of all theorists, which is not to take anything away from his scholarship. It's just a fascinating twist of history that is, frankly, above my pay grade. So we'll pick up our journey heading out of the critique period by talking about Proudhon and Bakunin and why their contributions bridge the narrative to the Praxis period, which really takes shape in 1870. We'll spend a bit of time in 1870 and 1871 to discuss why this was such an inflection point that reverberates even today, then crank through 50 years of an epic battle between socialism and capitalism, culminating in the dual revolutions in Russia in 1917 as we begin the next chapter. Let's quickly talk about the distinction between these periods and why I chose to separate them around this specific moment in time. I'm not sure you understand the definition of quickly. Again, moving on. This is where we have to bring political structures into the conversation. We're talking specifically about Europe because we're talking about European-style socialism, but we can't discount what was unfolding around the world. In Asia, the dominant force remained the Qing dynasty, though anti-monarchism would eventually spread to China in much the same way as it swept across Europe only slightly later. 
And of course, across the pond, the American experiment continued to arouse interest among political groups. A nascent empire built on democratic principles with no established monarchical rule, no heirs or dynasties? Yes, please. The possibility of secular democratic rule was inspiring, and there's no question that it was influencing the minds of the great thinkers in our story. With more than 50 revolts and uprisings occurring throughout Europe in 1848, it makes sense that a revolutionary sentiment was palpable. Whereas Marx viewed this through the lens of the proletariat and envisioned a mass uprising that crossed borders and united people based upon class, there was something much bigger at play. But one can't imagine how unsettling and also inspiring this period was because the uprisings were largely independent of one another, completely uncoordinated. So it does make sense that we would have an explosion of philosophical wonder at this moment. But if this scattershot of protests throughout Europe in 1848 signified a global philosophical shift and would pretend a changing of the ruling guard, then 1870 was the single atomic blast that would define the next century. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by overcaffeinated members Alfie and Flash, Asshole, Brie X, Cindy S, David MJ, Goat, G Wookie of Ohio, Eric Wagner 101, Joa, Cringy, Marco F, Maria from PR, Matthew, and Michelle H. Chapter 8 Socialist Fault Lines If critique implies something wholly theoretical, then the praxis phase represents the attempt to bring theory to life in some practical manner that impacts society broadly. That's why big ideas like socialism are ultimately difficult to define. A holistic framework like socialism must account for cultural practices, economic conditions, geography and terrain, education levels, legal structures, and political circumstances. And in 19th century Europe, every nation was undergoing incredible transformations in every manner possible. As we said in part three, what places Marx on the Mount Rushmore of political thinkers is his attempt to organize social, economic, and political theories into practical doctrines and to predict how it would all come about. Most practitioners of the social sciences just weren't that bold. Still, he had impressive foundations to build upon. Beccaria and Bentham were writing at a time of relative stability in terms of feudal and monarchical systems. Saint-Simon, Fourier, and Owen bore witness to the early impact of the first Industrial Revolution that challenged some of the economic and political structures that dominated European life for centuries. Combined with the Church's waning influence, they began to break free of traditional shackles to think freely about the evolution of society. Now, in response, intellectuals like John Stuart Mill and Karl Marx began to wonder aloud how society would evolve. The Germanic states were about to get a significant makeover under Otto von Bismarck. The United Kingdom would double down on imperialism. Monarchies and dynasties were just starting to fall apart. And the United States was careening toward a civil war that would take it off the stage for a spell. All the while, the capitalist engine was gaining a head of steam and new classes were being forged throughout Europe. Can you imagine how disorienting this period was? The church is no longer at the center of political and cultural life. The peasant class was migrating to urban environments, and beneath it all, we have a population growing exponentially, thus exacerbating the inequality that resulted from the new capitalist market structures. So now, let's paint the picture from the perspective of the worker. A generation ago, your family was probably working on a farm somewhere in the countryside and pretty uneducated. Now, you're living in a city, kids are attending a school, and you're working long hours in brutal conditions. But you're working and living alongside the same people, and so you get to talking, because you're always together. You still go to church, but it's not as important as it was to your parents. They don't run the schools and the government like they used to. And speaking of governments, the monarchy your ancestors grew up with, the ones who used to live in faraway gated castles and lord over vast territories of disparate villages, were losing luster and respect. They started to seem almost powerless in the face of the real people who are in charge these days. The factory owner. The capitalist. And that's where one of the fault lines in socialist praxis began to occur. Quote, in 1851, the Amalgamated Society of Engineers was formed, which became one of the New Model Unions. The distinctive feature of the New Model Union was that it organized skilled workers only on a craft basis, so to say the aristocracy of labor. Unskilled workers and workers in the new factory industries remained unorganized until towards the end of the century. 
French unions were closely associated with socialism of Saint-Simon and similar political ideologies from the beginning, but the French labor movement remained decentralized, highly individualistic, and therefore rather ineffective. Also, the German labor movement was associated with political parties and political action from its start in the 1860s, but it was more centralized and cohesive." End quote. This passage is from an essay titled Economic Development in Europe in the 19th Century. It highlights the differences between labor movements in different countries depending upon an array of influences and starting points. Now, I know I'm beating this to death. You? No. Stop, you're being too hard on yourself. <clears throat> I know I'm beating this to death, but noting the differences in culture, legal systems, education levels, and even which industries were taking off and where is really important because it prevents us from painting the European experience with a single brush. It also exposes one of the flaws in Marx's vision. Marx believed that the worker would see themselves as workers first and countrymen second. Religion didn't factor into his equation and governments were something to be seized. But that's not how the working class saw itself. We can see the difference in an important organization that was founded in 1864, long after the failed revolutions of 1848 had died down. The International Working Men's Association, known as the First International, was founded in London in September of that year. At this time, Marx had been thrown out of Germany, France, and Belgium, and was living in London, toiling away in almost total obscurity. Outside of the tiny constellation of revolutionaries who traded barbs and shared work with one another, he was essentially forgotten. Somehow, the reclusive Marx was invited to the inaugural meeting of the First International. Despite accounts that he said virtually nothing during the meeting, he was appointed to an organizational subcommittee, and he did not squander this opportunity. The idea behind the First International was to organize anarchists, socialists, and labor unions into a single movement. It was a bold initiative that gained surprising momentum early on and welcomed important intellectuals and labor leaders from all over the world. One of the most notable members was renowned anarchist Mikhail Bakunin. Bakunin was physically a hulking man, and he was a towering figure in several movements throughout his life. Described by someone close to him as, born not under an ordinary star, but under a comet. If Karl Marx was quietly annoying and politely exiled from country after country due to his writing, Bakunin was thrown out of countries like a disruptive bar patron. Born in Russia in 1814, Bakunin served in the Russian army before quitting to pursue philosophy. He moved about during the tumultuous period of the 1840s, spending time in Germany and France, and it's in France where he first encountered Marx and Engels, as well as Proudhon, whom we'll get to shortly. According to his biographer Paul Averick, quote, his broad magnanimity and childlike enthusiasm, his burning passion for liberty and equality, and his volcanic onslaughts against privilege and injustice all gave him enormous appeal in the libertarian circles of his day, end quote. His personality and tendency to draw attention would prove to be trouble for Bakunin. In Dresden, he was sentenced to death. Then he was extradited to Austria, where he was again sentenced to death. Fate intervened once again and he was sent to Russia, where he was imprisoned for several years, spending half of it in Siberia. Somehow, this very obvious and looming figure managed to escape to Japan and eventually made his way to the United States during the American Civil War. Of the United States, Bakunin wrote, quote, The most imperfect republic is a thousand times better than the most enlightened monarchy, end quote. After a brief visit to the United States, Bakunin would settle for a couple of years in London around the time the First International was founded. It was then he would cross paths more frequently with Marx and begin to collaborate with him on building this new international framework and here that we can also see the socialist and anarchist paths truly diverge. Quick note on Bakunin after this point because we're going to focus on the break with Marx more than the balance of Bakunin's life. Bakunin was eventually expelled from the First International because he started to break apart from the other anarchist groups represented in the group as well. Bakunin dedicated much of his energy in the later years to the workers' cause in Russia and had a great impact on anarchist thinking the world over. Eventually, he died in Switzerland in 1876. But it's how he broke with Marx's ideology that matters most in at least our story today. At its core, Bakunin's critique of Marx and the prevailing socialist narrative of the day was with respect to the state. In his words, quote, 
No theory, no ready-made system, no book that's ever been written will save the world. I cleave to no system, end quote. Essentially, Bakunin understood that no matter who was in control of the state, it would be corrupt. If the lower and working classes were to authentically gain control of their fate, they would need two things, education and organization. Again, Bakunin in his own words, quote, If instinct alone sufficed to liberate peoples, they would long since have freed themselves. These instincts did not prevent them from accepting all the religious, political, and economic absurdities of which they have been the eternal victims. They are ineffectual because they lack two things, organization and knowledge. End quote. In his mind, and in the minds of the growing ranks of anarchists in Europe, state socialism and state capitalism were two sides of the same coin. Marx's vision would simply replace one oppressive regime with another. Here's Chomsky 100 years after the fact, reflecting on how this all played out. It was foretold in one of the, maybe the only prediction of the social sciences that ever came so dramatically true uh, was uh, Bakunin's discussion of this in the, late, in the late 19th century. He was sort of arguing with Marx, and it's well before Leninism. But he predicted uh, very perceptively that the rising class of intellectuals are just kind of becoming identified as a class in modern, modern industrial societies. Uh, he predicted that they were essentially going to go in one of two directions. Uh, there would be some who would believe that uh, the struggles of the working class would offer them an opportunity to rise and take state power in their own hands. And at that point, he said, they would become the red bureaucracy who would create the worst tyranny that humanity has ever known. Of course, all in the interests of the workers. That's one direction. And he said the others uh, would recognize that you're never going to get power that way. And the way to get power is to associate yourself with what we would nowadays call state capitalism uh, and just become the servants of its ruling class. Bakunin understood the two paths forward better than anyone, it seems. Either you'll have a red bureaucracy with labor rising up to seize control of the state, or they'll partner with state capitalism. That's why he advocated for elimination of the state to the greatest extent possible and is considered one of the founders of modern anarchism. But if his ideas were taking root in Russia and the Germanic states in particular, there was another part of Europe that was trending in a different direction. Here's Marx from the Communist Manifesto. France is the land where, more than anywhere else, the historical class struggles were each time fought out to a decision and where, consequently, the changing political forms within which they move and in which their results are summarized have been stamped in the sharpest outlines. And this is where we have a little visit with Proudhon. Proudhon connects so many of our protagonists. He's associated with Charles Fourier in particular and knew both Marx and Bakunin personally. A French socialist, philosopher, and economist, Proudhon was the first to declare himself an anarchist, describing liberty as, quote, the synthesis of communism and property. One unfortunate trait that he shared with Bakunin was a tendency to casual anti-Semitism in his writings. Bakunin was more prone to these sentiments in private, whereas I think it's fair to say that it was more pronounced in Proudhon's work. Whether that's part of the subtext to his criticisms of Marx is beyond me, but it's worth pointing out that there were interpersonal dynamics at play during the period that should not be ignored. Proudhon was also far more sexist than his contemporaries, many of whom were firmly behind the feminist and suffrage movements. But in practical philosophical terms, Proudhon favored worker cooperatives as well as peasant possession over private ownership or the nationalization of land and workplaces. It's here where Marx and Proudhon would battle most for the mantle of the emerging socialist doctrine. As Harrington writes, quote, One part of that realism which emerged with striking clarity in Marx's 1847 polemic with Proudhon was an insistence upon the importance of an emergent trade union movement to socialism. In one of his most audacious insights, Marx understood that the unions, even when focused on immediate demands, were potentially the school of socialism, the point of contact between the movement's idealism and the practicality of the masses, end quote. So we see at this time that our intellectuals were trying to incorporate labor unions into their revolutionary prescriptions. 
It's interesting that Marx, Bakunin, and Proudhon were writing at the height of the American Civil War. Because when we think about this period, I think that U.S. ethnocentrism tends to overlook the fact that these figures were all contemporaries of Abraham Lincoln. In The Federative Principle, Proudhon wrote, quote, If Mr. Lincoln teaches his compatriots to overcome their revulsion, grant blacks their civil rights, and also declares war on what creates the proletariat, the Union will be saved, end quote. Proudhon was already in praxis mode, maybe even more than Marx and Bakunin. He attempted to found a national bank that looks a lot like the modern-day credit union. He pushed for an income tax on capitalists and shareholders. But he's perhaps most famous for the popular phrase, property is theft, a proclamation taken from his influential work, What is Property?, in which he also declared, I am an anarchist. Unlike Marx's break later with Bakunin, Marx and Proudhon would battle through polemics almost from the outset of their relationship. Proudhon published The Philosophy of Poverty in 1846 in response to what he viewed as Marx's authoritarian version of socialism. And always looking for a good fight, Marx responded the following year with The Poverty of Philosophy and attacked Proudhon vigorously. Proudhon wasn't immune to the treatment his contemporaries received at the hands of power, by the way. Though he wasn't exiled or sentenced to death anywhere or forced to live the nomadic existence that both Mark and Bakunin led, he was imprisoned by Napoleon III for nearly three years following the revolts of 1848. But perhaps the clearest expression of his feelings towards state socialism can be found in his publication The General Idea of the Revolution in the 19th Century, where he states, quote, Direct legislation, direct government, simplified government are ancient lies, which they try in vain to rejuvenate direct or indirect, simple or complex. Governing the people will always be swindling the people. It is always man giving orders to man. The fiction which makes an end to liberty, brute force, which cuts questions short in the place of justice, which alone can answer them. Obstinate ambition, which makes a stepping stone of devotion and credulity. UNFTR is also sponsored by overcaffeinated members Nathan E., Nathan Surst, Nettie Hugger One, Pete M., Rob Nasby, Rodrigo G., Ryan F., Sultan, Terry C., The Younger PDX Squatch, Video N. Jalix, W. Jeremy D., and The Memory of Nettie McGee. Coffee break! Don't forget, Unfuckers, we get by through memberships and donations and all sorts of interactions with our wonderful, wonderful, beautiful audience. One of the ways that you can help support the show is by purchasing our native roasted coffee in partnership with Native Coffee Traders. Remember, it's organic, fair trade, bird-friendly, shade-grown coffee that's imported directly to the reservation and roasted with love by Big Mama on the Puspatuck Reservation. You can order it by going to unftr.com, and you can find all the ways to support us at unftr.com as well, including subscribing to our newsletter at unftr.com slash blog. Also, remember, leave us a five-star review. You're listening to the show right now. Go into the podcast app. Do it. When you boil it all down, what does a man really need? Just a smoke and a cup of coffee. Chapter 9, 1870, the year everything changed. Throughout the 20th century, historians began to look at 1870 as a tipping point in the evolution of political and economic systems. Stepping back again to contextualize what was happening on the ground, we can see some clear changes that began with the uprisings of 1848 and culminated in 1870. The formation of unions and the tension between the creation of trade, or craft unions, that organized workers by their chosen trade, and industrial unions that attempted to unite workers of all backgrounds and skill levels. This is going to be a central theme in our next section when we examine the American socialist experiment. Simultaneously, monarchical authority and state power was beginning to disintegrate in new and different ways, with the capitalist class emerging to wrest control of state apparatuses. And we have the burgeoning social systems associated with our protagonists, ranging from socialism and anarchism to mutualism and syndicalism. But the real world was moving faster than the social theorists who were attempting to define it. Two events that center on this period would provide a boost to capitalism with such force and authority that it would become the dominant political and economic structure and alter the course of human existence. German unification and the Second Industrial Revolution. 
the German writer Ludwig von Rochow coined the term realpolitik in the 19th century. This term would come to be associated with the governing style of Otto von Bismarck, who unified the Germanic states in the mid-19th century. By 1870, Bismarck's work was near complete, and a new form of politics was born. An empire not based on blood rule or aristocracy. An empire born not of bloodlust, but by pragmatism. Drawn upon ethnic lines, organized to promote economic growth, and unified by language and culture. The speed with which Bismarck acted and the ease with which he drew together the Germanic states immediately cast unified Germany in a new light and made it the center of the European economy. Sure, the United States had done it, but it was a blank slate, a clean canvas. All it took was political will, a frontier spirit, and willingness to commit mass genocide of native peoples to build an independent state. But for a ruler to unite the Germanic states under a political and economic umbrella and wrap it in nationalistic pride was kind of astounding. This wasn't hereditary, it was ethnic a top-down maneuver that understood the bottom-up. Bring together disparate states that are unified by language and culture enough to make it a source of pride, create an economic engine that will be dominant, and kick the whole thing off by kicking Napoleon's ass. And you've got a formula for secular nationalism. Uh, well, you kind of glossed over the whole kicking of Napoleon's ass thing. Right, I guess that is actually super important. Now, the history buffs out there will know this, but quickly. There's that word again. <laughs> but quickly, like so many other nation states, Spain was still in turmoil and was struggling to recover economically. So a deal was struck with Bismarck to facilitate the administrative state. Not in a way that would make it part of Germany, but in a more consultative fashion more than anything. This was the last straw for France, who saw the encroachment on southern Europe as a bridge too far. So they mounted an offensive against the newly formed German state, then ended up with the total defeat of Napoleon's army and his imprisonment. As a result, France was forced to give up the territory of Alsace and Lorraine, or most of it, which kicked off mass outflow of French from these parts and an influx of German citizens. As if that wasn't enough, Germany also imposed punitive financial reparations upon France, which stymied the economy of the entire country. There are two massive things that result from this, one immediate and another that would play out over time. The immediate impact was the formation of the Paris Commune in 1871, which we'll talk about shortly. The long-term consequence of German unification and punitive treatment of the French was a deep-seated hatred of the German people in France that would explode not once, but twice in the next century, with devastating consequences to the world. A 1981 article by Roberto Vivarelli from the University of Florence details the importance of 1870 in geopolitical terms, centering on the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 and 71, calling it a, quote, prelude to the First World War. In the article, he cites a number of historians who share the view that 1870 was indeed an inflection point that reverberates well into the 20th century. Quote, 1870, which saw the formation of the German Empire as it was shaped by Bismarck and the beginning of German hegemony over Europe, took on the precise function of a turning point a decisive moment at which one distinct form or ideological era comes to an end and another begins. Thus, the moment of change that marked the defeat of liberalism echoed that decline in Europe, which later found its provisory epilogue in the First World War." End quote. But the impact of 1870 extended beyond the First Great War. As Harrington writes, quote, Bismarck's revolution from above left reactionary social and ideological structures intact and prepared the way for Adolf Hitler. End quote. What's really important about Harrington's note here is that Bismarck didn't just unify Germany into a superpower relative to the time, but he did so without smashing the working class or any of the labor movements. So during the Great Depression, revolutionaries and fringe political parties who were sidelined at the turn of the century and through World War I still remained, albeit on the sidelines. But they were there, and the more radical elements were prone to view the outreach of the Nazi party in a favorable light. But that's for another day. What's important about Bismarck's actions is that he took a top-down approach to consolidating power that alternately inspired some of our philosophers and really worried others. If the working classes could be so easily swept up into state control and assuaged, then over time, they would become servants to the capitalist state. And we saw that reflected in Bakunin's remarks, right? 
But what's fascinating is that recessions and economic shocks continued unabated during the 1870s and 1880s, which contributed to the economic dislocation of workers at the same time the world was going through a technological revolution that favored the capitalist class. How the Second Industrial Revolution took shape is really important to understand because it speaks to the utter speed and totality of industrialization throughout Europe that would overwhelm any causes for revolution and splinter the labor groups, thus preventing the concept of worker solidarity across national boundaries. In 1998, Joel Mokhire, a professor of economics and history at Northwestern University, wrote a paper on the magnitude of the Industrial Revolution. Here's a passage for context. Quote, the first industrial revolution and most technological developments preceding it had little or no scientific base. It created a chemical industry with no chemistry, an iron industry without metallurgy, power machinery without thermodynamics. Engineering, medical technology, and agriculture until 1850 were pragmatic bodies of applied knowledge in which things were known to work, but rarely was it understood why they worked. End quote. Quote, the consequence of changing production technology was the rise of technological systems. Again, some rudimentary systems of this nature were already in operation before 1870. Railroad and telegraph networks and in large cities, gas, water supply, and sewage systems were in existence. These systems expanded enormously after 1870, and a number of new ones were added, electrical power and telephone being the most important ones. The second industrial revolution turned the large technological system from an exception to a commonplace." End quote. Innovation during this time was both widespread and sector-specific. For example, Henry Bessemer revolutionized the steel industry with the Bessemer converter that eliminated impurities from iron and sparked subsequent innovations that resulted in high-quality and far cheaper steel. The Germans led the charge in chemical innovation that impacted agriculture, medicine, weapons, plastics, rubber, and myriad applications that enhanced a wide array of industries. Electricity was still in the nascent stages of development in the 1800s, but it exploded after 1870 with the invention of the light bulb, Nikola Tesla's alternating currents, and large-scale energy transmission projects that would light up entire cities. Rail travel got faster and safer. Crude oil cracking was invented, which kicked off a wave of innovation with respect to the use of fossil fuel. So against this backdrop of historic innovation that helped foster capitalism, we have Bismarck's top-down consolidation of the Germanic states that allowed for the existence of labor unions, thus calming some of the revolutionary spirit from the leftist movements. It also cleared the way for the growth of the capitalist class in spite of profound recessions that was able to take advantage of a freight train of innovation exploding throughout Europe. With a convincing victory over its rival in France and no monarchy to pay fealty to, the most significant development from this period was indeed the invention and immediate rise of nationalism. As Vivarelli notes, quote, the key to understanding German unification in 1870 lay in the creation of a strong state, not in a free state. All the elements of an aggressive nationalism can be found in the history of Germany after 1870, but they're already present in the parliament of Frankfurt and in the German middle classes that were represented in that parliament. And it is here that the separation between the idea of nation and the liberal idea was first fully expressed in Germany." End quote. I know it's strange to come in now with what I refer to as the bookend of the critique period, but similar to Owen's New Harmony experiment, the short-lived existence of the Paris Commune is absolutely central to understanding the hope and optimism that remains among proponents of socialism, and it really crystallized Marx's view of the potential that existed among the working class to rise up and seize the levers of power. With Napoleon defeated and imprisoned, the French government was adrift. Racked with recession and rudderless, a movement took hold in France to regain control of its fate. On March 26 of 1871, a group referred to as the Paris Commune, a worker-led party, was elected to lead the nation. Its list of accomplishments is stunning and the organization was swift. According to Marxist.org, quote, On March 30, the Commune abolished conscription and the standing army and declared that the National Guard, in which all citizens capable of bearing arms were to be enrolled, was to be the sole armed force. It remitted all payments of rent for dwelling houses from October 1870 until April. 
the amounts already paid to be reckoned on a future rental period, and stopped all sales of articles pledged in the municipal pawn shops. On the same day, the foreigners elected to the commune were confirmed in office because, quote, the flag of the commune is the flag of the World Republic, end quote. The commune continued breaking down all remnants of power structure by formally separating the church from state affairs. It removed all religious symbolism from the schools and state offices. It revived factories with workers in charge of production and decision-making, legislated reduced working hours, abolished child labor, burned public guillotines, and demolished symbols of militarism. It banned state press, encouraged participation from women, and took control of the nation's finances to settle debts and return money to the people. It was a glorious period that would inspire not only Marx and build the reputation of Proudhon, who was seen as an inspirational figure for the French revolutionaries, but it would provide a useful legend for the likes of Lenin and Trotsky just a few decades later. Lenin, in fact, referred to this period as, quote, the first step, and would use it as a model for the Russian Soviets. In the end, the commune lasted only two months before the exiled leaders gathered military forces and brutally put down the leaders in what is referred to as the Bloody Week. But the Paris Commune would loom large in socialist circles as an example of what's possible when the working class unites. Bring it home, Max. The death of our protagonists over the next several years cleared the way for the new revolutionaries who would interpret their work in various ways and battle against the forces of industrialization. Now, capitalism would go on a historic winning streak at the turn of the 20th century, characterized by increasing nationalism and a new breed of imperialist tendencies across the pond in the United States. In the next sections, we're going to move toward the United States, but also tell the story of Russia in parallel as new figures emerged to seize control of the public imagination as well as the levels of power with vastly different outcomes that would forever splinter the socialism movement and corrupt many of the ideals of its founders. In this next section, we'll explore the increasing divide between industrial and craft unions, as well as anarchists and the new breed of socialists in Europe characterized by Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin. We'll talk about how the Great War changed the calculus in both Europe and America and fed into the capitalist movement and the rise of nationalism that would plague the globe throughout the 20th century and beyond. We'll talk about why Marx emerged as the figurehead of communist movements and how state power in partnership with the newly formed capitalist class combined to snuff out the labor movement in the United States, and how a lanky, mild-mannered figure from Indiana named Eugene Debs would capture the imagination of so many Americans, from railroad laborers in the early 1900s to Bernie Sanders. For now, here endeth part four of Understanding Socialism. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hey, fuckers! welcome to Post Show Musings. Our resources are expanding. Now, book love has pretty much stayed the same, so we won't review that. But we have added a few few pieces of information that are really important to really explain uh, the importance of 1870 in particular. Um, so there's a lot of great scholarship that's out there, obviously, because we've had <laughs> a little bit of time since then. But uh, check out the resources that we're going to post online at unftr.com. You can search the episodes and find this and then find links to all of that. And yeah, things are really heating up. It's getting exciting. But hopefully this kind of explains, you know, what happened at that moment. I was really I was really taken aback by 1870, by the way. 1870, I, it was cool. At 99, I had sort of a cool learning journey in that I, I wasn't focused on 1870. So I hadn't really read anything about a particular inflection point. So I had known kind of broadly that one of the one of the things that really stole thunder from Marx's theory in real time. And I think he was seeing that towards the end of his life was the rise of nationalism. And we've talked about that before. We talked about how he didn't account for the rise of nationalism and thought that workers could cross boundaries and would see themselves, you know, united, irrespective of cultural influences or, or even ethnicity. And how that plus capitalism taking off 
kind of suppressed that 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 feeling. But of course, the Soviet Union as the expression that we all have come to understand as socialism, but it's not socialism in, in the 20th century, was actually able to cross national and ethnic boundaries into this super nationalistic state that is the Soviet Union. So it sort of almost looked like his theories were successful and they could they could do it because they gained control of state power. But it still left us really prone to these great wars, as we saw in the Second World War, that was based on a true nationalistic tendency coming out of the Great Depression. So I kept finding 1870 as sort of this, this inflection point because the Paris Commune was 1871. And I think so many of those theorists were inspired by that at that time that I finally just Googled, how important is 1870 in, in Europe? And there's tons of scholarship. So it was like, half of it was like, oh, fuck, this has been done so many times before. But then it was like this genuine, authentic stumbling into, into learning to understand that now that with enough time, we've seen this moment where without Bismarck unifying those German states, it like one of those like time machine moments, like, wow, I wonder how different shit would have been because nationalism is such a, is such a curse on the world today. I mean, we see it, we live it every day with, you know, with sort of the, the flag waving conservative end of the spectrum, just, you know, uniting around really kind of horrific principles all in the name of, you know, God and country. But I think I didn't appreciate how that didn't exist prior, how that's kind of a new invention. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So Germany loves nationalism. They truly do. They're very good at it. <laughs> They've been very good the at it. The best, you would say. Yeah, maybe the best. Yeah, I think they've, they've been spending uh, several decades trying to walk that back a little bit. And maybe we've kind of uh, stolen that mantle from them. But uh, yeah. yeah, we've stolen it. And we're also trying to erase what they did by denying it. So Denying what? Exactly. <laughs> uh, I love this stuff on fuckers. I really do. I know that this is, I know that this journey is kind of robbing us of... Everything else. Everything else <laughs> and sort of like tackling some immediate things. I am, full disclosure, I'm going on vacation for a little bit. Uh, this is my annual vacation with my family uh, that we take at this time every year. But we're, we have a lot of stuff planned to drop in the interim. And one of the things I'm trying to get done before I go is uh, something that is more immediate and talks about kind of the state of the economy. There's, I have so many questions circling in my head that I just can't like... I can't formulate and get to, so I started mapping that out, and hopefully that'll drop along the way. But, but I know that this is preventing us from getting to, uh, you know, more topical things. But I feel like, and I and I really want people's feedback on this. Please send it in to us. You know, unftrpod at gmail. Let us know if you think that this is as valuable as I'm finding it, because in the spirit of history always repeating itself, and if you don't learn from your mistakes, you're destined to repeat them. I, I'm finding so many parallels in in this experience, but I'm also finding, I guess it's 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 making me search more intensely for who would be the figures today that we're covering from from the past and and struggling to find them to a degree. You know, there's there's plenty of intellectuals out there that can tell you what happened and why, but not a lot of people trying to synthesize all of this into what a, a potential path forward might be. Or you just don't know them. Marx was no one. That's right. Good point. Van Gogh was no one. Is that right? Van Gogh was really not He was uh, like known extremely in his life? poor. Everyone thought he was nuts. I mean, he struggled with mental illness, but they would just call him crazy and like a lunatic and kick him out and whatever. But yeah, he was a brilliant, brilliant person and didn't get recognition until after he sadly passed hmm. mm -hmm. like tesla dying penniless and alone in a in a hotel room in a beat up hotel room motel room hotel motel hotel motel room. holiday inn yeah it's a pitbull song oh god it's sugar hill gang song long before it was a pitbull song but okay so where my uh daughter goes to college there's a there's a howard johnson's mm -hmm. is it the last one I'm probably revealing too much if it is, but oh my god! I don't think so. I think I stayed in one once at camp. <sighs> yeah, they made us stay at a hojo. Hojo. Okay, I guess we'll stay here. That's cool because they just haven't changed anything. 
look exactly the same as I remember them in my child, but I remember more of them when I when I was little. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like Hilton and Hamptons are affordable, so people prefer to stay there than yeah. a, a hojo. Yeah. I don't want to stay anything that calls itself a motel. I think that's the problem. Maybe I'm classist, but yeah, I'm afraid. Hojo, Arby's, just like... Uh, Arby's is a not a hotel. No, but I'm thinking of like these little things Dying. from yet. Like I can't believe that they're me and my still sister around. were talking about that. Do Arby's only exist? Or no, Roy Rogers. Does, oh, Roy Rogers. Does, I know one. They here. only exist in rest stops. No, there's a, there's a independent one. What? Yeah. That's wild. Mm. Yeah, that's like why we went to a rest stop and it was like the only food they had and I was like, I'm not doing this. When's the last time you had a burger? Recently, I mean, like, what kind? Not an impossible, but when's the last time you had, uh, like, a, uh, like meat? Yeah, when's the last time you had meat? 15 plus years. 15 plus years? That's incredible. That's I've, incredible. I don't think I've ever, one, I think I used to eat chicken nuggets when I got fast food, but apparently when I was really little, I ate burgers, but like, I don't have any memory of ever eating a fast food burger. Is that right? Yeah. Hmm. I, oh, by the way, I saw, God, was it the Times? It said, uh, those who, consume plant-based diet are we're gonna live longer uh, we're better people sorry for everyone else it's <laughs> just my inner monologue running ah. <laughs> mm, maybe it wasn't the times I, I saw an article about um, those who consume a plant-based diet are are 80 percent more helpful to the planet I don't, I don't know where that percentage comes from or what have you but it, it was interesting to see it in a kind of like a, a popular format that it's like not talking about health, just talking about like, yeah, it, it has the ability to literally transform our future. Google vegetarian or like vegan calculator and there's going to be a website that comes up. The vegan calculator. Try And then put in 15 years or whatever it is. And it's been probably 15 and a half at this point. How much are you saving as a vegan? Okay, let's do, let's do you. Let's do 15 years. And in fairness, I haven't been vegan the entire 15, but like... Let's call it that. 5,476 animals not eaten, 6,023,600 gallons of water saved, 219,000 pounds of grain, 109,000 pounds of CO2, and 164,000 square feet of forest. So if you double that... Thank you. Me and, my, me and 101 have been vegan, vegetarian the same amount of time. We did it within like a week of each other. We're so, going to need four or five more of you, well, I think. Well, my mom has been now v- vegan, vegetarian for like five years, I think. Okay. So you got three-fourths of the 99 family. Mm. Papa 99 will <laughs> will never. Mm. He, he like didn't eat red meat for a while, and then he was like, oh, I have nothing to eat. And I'm like, go away. <laughs> um, but imagine if there is a four-person family. Imagine if there's 100 four-person families and 75% of them... 75% of the four-person families are vegan. It's doable. We're there. Yeah. Then we're there. We saved the world. We got Nathan S. Give you give you a cape. Nathan Surst, excuse me. That's right. Who's plant-based now. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I had my list of, of uh, plant fuckers. You know, we have a good amount of plant fuckers out there. Proud is that what of you I, all. Is that what I wanted? Uh, oh. It's uh, been so long. Oh, the great debate. The I great can't plant remember. fucker debate. <laughs> Did you want tofu fucker? Or like un- unclucker. Unclucker. That yeah. was my vote. That's okay, right. No wonder. Yeah. Phew. <laughs> Glad we s- settled on plant fucker. Um, um, just to plant the seed, uh, switching gears for one second here. But this isn't there, relevant? No, it's very relevant. It's all very relevant. We have uh, an interview coming up, a phone a friend that uh, hopefully you'll be treated to while I'm on vacation. I'm very excited for that. Stop bragging that you're going on vacation. I get know. it. I got to go. I got to get out of here. I don't know how to do this necessarily I don't know whether we should wait uh, till we get back but Manny I'm gonna I want to tee you up for a conversation about what is happening in hip-hop with respect to the right wing so we're, we're having a uh, little online dialogue he and I where he's he's kind of cluing me into things that are happening you may have most recently seen it was ice cube uh, meeting with ice cube who has you know, met with Trump before and done all sorts of, you know, weird hip hop outreach stuff. But he's uh, had sort of a, I think Ice Cube has done some anti-vax stuff before. But that's just sort of the tip of the the cultural iceberg when it comes iceberg? to. Ice Cube. Ice Cube iceberg. Uh, sort of the the tip of the, yeah, whatever, um, of the popular <laughs> the culture, the you know, aspect of like what, you know, Ice Cube is a older figure in the movement. He's, he's definitely 
He doesn't represent the the hardcore hip hop culture of today because he's 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 a famous person. He's an actor. He's all those sorts of things. But there isn't there is a movement that the right is executing better to attach to to basically try to woo over the young black vote in the United States, and they're doing it through the auspices of hip hop and some of the other cultural figures, which is really fascinating stuff. I think it's something that as we cover election politics that we should dig into. So Manny, want to tee you up for that conversation? And uh, yeah, so much more that we've got kind of rolling around our heads. But to put a fine point on the socialism series, we're going to talk about the Russian Revolution, but in parallel with sort of the the labor, I guess, uh, the labor movement in the United States that attempted to, uh, to align with the socialist movement, why the socialist movement didn't get off the ground to the extent that it may have or should have in the United States First off, due to the normal imperialist power structures that tried to squash it, but also because of the threat of the Soviet Union. And um, so the, I, I really feel like you can't tell one without the other. What what I glossed over in this section is kind of the, the turn of the century. The turn of, I don't want to say that it was of no moment, uh, but we are going to kind of surge ahead into how the Praxis period actually took shape in the form of the Russian Revolution, because I think that's the most important thing for us to deconstruct, and then how the United States would subsequently respond to that uh, when we came out of the Depression and the Second World War. So we were fast friends when we needed to be, and that immediately you know, dissolved and then set us on the path for the, you know, it set us on another 75-year course, basically talking about the evils of socialism in this country as capitalism ran amok across the planet. So, Praxis makes perfect. <laughs> So with that, as always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro. Many faces. It's produced by the great and the powerful Planet Earth Saving 99. Thank you for the work that you do. You're welcome. All the original music is produced by Tom McGovern. Go to TomMcGovern.com to find out more about what that guy's up to. I'm your host, Max. I love being with you. For all the things that you need to know about UNFTR, go to UNFTR.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review. If you drink coffee, drink our coffee. And if you want to be engaged with us on a more consistent basis, please do sign up for our newsletter at UNFTR.com slash blog. That is all for now. Catch you when we catch you. Was that your stomach? It was. Holy shit. Thank you. You think the mic picked that up? I might have. Bye. <laughs>